Welcome to our last time together in the book of Proverbs. Has it been good? Man, I tell you, I love this book. It is simple, it is powerful, and it is necessary. And it is good for my soul. And I cannot read it enough. I always play the game as I read Proverbs. I'll start the first part of a a proverb and I'll just stop myself and go, how would I finish that? And uh, what you want to do is be a guy that just bathes himself in this book because this book will make you wise. And wisdom is what our world needs. It's what will restore the glory that uh, foolishness and rebellion has lost. And it's been a privilege to be with you guys. Let me pray for us and we're going to dive in. Father, I thank you for these guys, these men that have disciplined themselves to rise up early, even when they retire late. And they have, um, Lord, been men that have uh, painfully labored, I hope, to memorize scripture, to meditate on it, and to pursue each other. But Lord, we thank you that no matter how much we seek you, you always seek us more, as the scripture says. You give to your beloved even in their sleep. But Lord, we are not men who want to be asleep. We are men who want to lead. We're men who want to abide with you, who want to be sober-minded and on the alert. Thank you that you are a gracious God, that you love us more than we'll ever love you, and you've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Friends to encourage us, the word to guide us, and your spirit to convict us and empower us. We thank you that you've given a, a, a sacrifice to redeem us, And you are a God who loves us. Help us to live in that reality and to walk worthy of the manner with which we have been called. So bless these guys, Lord. I pray that these weeks together would bear great fruit. I pray they would continue in our lives going forward. Our love for the Proverbs and our love for each other in response to your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. It is uh, just a fact and not necessarily complimentary to the masses that they are easily led or that they typically follow uh, the leadership over them. When you think of Israel under David, you think of a sweet season. When you think of Israel um, gathered for the first time and led out of slavery under Moses, you think of a really good thing. When you think of Hezekiah and how his courage stiffened the spine of a nation against a marauding group of, in, uh, of uh, attackers from Assyria. You think of a sweet season. When you think of Isaiah showing up to speak truth against a weakening people, it's an encouraging thing. And then there are some men whose names I would mention that when you think of them, you go, that wasn't such a good time for Israel. What makes a difference for people is their shepherd. I just want to start right here and just tell you leadership's not easy. It's never been uh, intended to be. Leadership is expensive and uh, it's difficult because while it is true that people largely follow leaders, it's also true that sometimes they don't respect their leaders the way they should. Here's a video you may have seen before. It's painful to watch, but brace yourself if you want to be a leader. Oh no. 
boom. Yeah, it feels like that sometimes the lead, I promise you. Yeah, let's stop that. Uh, brutal. Brutal. <laughs> Sweet little lambs, aren't they? <laughs> Let me tell you, man, sheep sometimes can be brutal, and leadership can be tough, and it takes somebody with a deep conviction that what they're doing is worth it. A leadership is a commitment, I, I, I love to say, uh, to be misunderstood. Sometimes the herd will turn on you and run at you, and that's okay. A good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We are called to serve, and servants, um, as I remember a long time ago, one of the very first books I read was a book called Improving Your Serve by Chuck Swindoll. And in that book, there's a line that just sticks with me, and he just said this. He said, the true mark of a servant is that when he's treated like one, he's not bothered or surprised. Now, why am I talking about servanthood when I'm talking about leadership? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. The greatest leaders are the greatest servants. He says most folks, you know, want to be uh, powerful and in positions of privilege so they can lord it over others because that's what the pagans do. And I don't want you to be like that. The one to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant. You want to be a great leader, you've got to give your life for others. There are two times, as I've said repeatedly recently to a number of people, that um, the word example shows up in scripture. One of them, specifically related to Jesus Christ, there's two times. One of them is in John 13, when he took up the towel. And he said, you've said that I am uh, your master teacher, and you're exactly right. That's exactly who I am. But I, being your master and your Lord, have taken up the towel and washed your feet, so you also ought to do with one another. I did this, he says, as an example for you. This is what leaders do. They make provision for their people. And they serve them. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, that disciple that um, was closest to Jesus among many others, Peter, uh, he said this, Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. And so the two primary examples of the greatest leader that ever lived are that he is a suffering servant. You think leader, you ought to think suffering servant. Most people want to be leaders so they can have the corner office, they can have position, they can have power, they can have freedom, and a true leader has no freedom. He gives himself for the will of his people. Now, the freedom that he has is to die for his people if he's going to be a leader like Christ. The freedom he has is to do the right thing. And one of the reasons we discipline ourselves here and get up early and study the reason we, the way we do is because we are trying to prepare ourselves and steal our convictions so that in the moments when most guys would tap out, we would continue. God is looking for men, many uh, that, will, that will lead and follow him. Um, there is... Uh, many a man who proclaims his faithfulness or his loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? We know that uh, some of the verses that we were going to look at this week, and when we memorize Proverbs 29.2, there's, there's verses in, in Proverbs that, that um, talk about what happens when you have certain leaders. Proverbs 28.28 says, when the wicked rise, men hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. 
And then 29.2, the verse we memorized. When the righteous increase, it's a good thing. The people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. I just want to say this, guys. If you're Love, if you aren't loving and leading the way you should at home, you aren't loving and leading the way you should. Everything that we're talking about here is not so much about organizational leadership or about public leadership. If it doesn't first show up in our homes, it doesn't really matter what kind of leaders and lovers we are. That is why when it talks about Choosing leaders for the family of God, it always says, hey, how's he doing at loving and leading his own family? And I'm going to tell you, there is nothing in our country that is suffering like children underneath kings that aren't ruling well at home. It's why we gather together. And this is an increasingly difficult world, and you need wisdom to lead well in it. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It's a, it's a great little section of scripture because as, as Solomon, the wisest guy that ever lived, or at least the guy that had all the um, information you ever needed to, leave, to live a, a skilled life, uh, says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. There's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven. There's a time to give birth, there's a time to die, there's a time to plant, and a time to uproot what is planted, there's a time to kill. It's a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, it's a time to laugh, a time to mourn, there's a time to dance, there's a time to throw stones, and a time to gather, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing. Now, as you read this, I'll finish in just a second, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking? You're like, yeah, that's exactly right, and my, uh, my kids are trying to figure out, right, when to do this. One of the things that um, is just difficult about growing up is you don't always know what time it is. My, um, my 13-year-old son recently was in class and some teacher uh, said, hey, um, you know, I want you to write down these vocabulary words. And some kid was writing them on a note card and he raised his hand. He goes, hey, how many vocabulary words do we have? And, uh, and Camp just shouted out. He goes, well, I'll tell you this, if it's more than 15, I'm walking out of this class. And he thought it was just kind of funny, and it, you know. Uh, and the teacher goes, well, actually, Camp, there's 20. And he just closed his books, and he got up, and he walked out of his class. He thought that was funny. And the teacher looked at him and just said, Camp, what are you doing? And he kind of, what he was doing was he was being funny. He goes, I'm a man of my word. I told you if you give us more than 15, I'm going to walk out in silent protest. I love what she did. She locked the door, all right? <laughs> so when he came back after going to the bathroom thinking he made some funny statement about, you know, uh, uh, some silent protest, she just goes, go, to, go down there to Dr. Bohack's office. You know, go see, go see him. And, you know, that little joy and that laughter, thinking it was time to rebel, right, turned into this moping in, in just a moment. But that's what kids do, right? I, I, you know, they don't know what time it is all the time and how far to take different things. And so you learn that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I told him I'd have walked out at 10 personally, but that's not here, they're there. Um, but uh, it says there's a time to search, a time to give up, as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, a time to sew together, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And why am I reading this? Because the big question is, what time is it? And what the world is looking for is somebody to tell them, what time is it? What do we need to do? What's the right next step? And man, there is nothing 
like a godly leader who knows what to do. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. When they go, man, you know what time it is. One of my favorite definitions of a leader is that um, the, the job of a leader is to define reality. It's the first thing they do. I think it was Max Dupree who said this, wrote a book called Leadership Jazz. And he said, the the first job of a leader is to find reality. The last job of a leader is to say thank you. And what he does in between is basically encourage others and get out of the way. Well, leaders never really get out of the way. They just don't always need to be out front and celebrated. What leaders do is influence. What leaders do is they get behind. What leaders do is they say, follow me. What leaders do is they speak the truth in a way that people won't always love and sometimes will come charging at you, but in a way that when it works its way out, they go, that is good. Leadership is everything. Leaders don't wait around to see what polls are gonna suggest. Uh, You know, Gallup, that's what's on their website. It just says leaders lead differently when they know what Gallup knows. And I would tell you, no. Leaders don't follow polls, they change them. That's what they do. Uh, There is a guy whose name shows up in scripture who is probably the, uh, one of the greatest leaders in the history of Israel. His name is Jeroboam. Over 20 different times after his kingdom is long gone, he is dead and in the grave, Jeroboam's name keeps showing up. Now look, here's what you need to know about um, Israel. It was united by God under a monarchy. There's one king that ruled over the 12 tribes because the people wanted uh, what all the other nations had, which was a king to lead them. God said, hey, it'd be better for you if I was your king. But when there was chaos... Um, it always makes people want a leader, right? Chaos always makes room for tyrants. That's why in our country, one of the things you're seeing is identity politics and people that want to destroy us are trying to break down our morality and say what you need is your way, what you need is your way, what you need is your way. And what they're doing is they're bifurcating our country under different values and systems and wants. And we are not e pluris unum, Out of many, one, we are just many, and we must go to war with each other. And what will happen with that chaos is they will offer stability. They will take from one to give to them, and they will say, I'm the leader to do it for you. And what they're looking for is power, and not to serve people, but to get something on their own. It is just basic. Um, Yeah, really, I mean, I don't know if you really care. I mean, there's political scientists have studied this for a long time. They would just tell you, there's a guy named Saul Alinsky, who wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. You want to subvert a nation? Here you go. Ridicule is your most powerful weapon. You marginalize people. You personalize and polarize people from one another. You undermine the legitimacy of ethics. You make people who hold to old standards look stupid or evil in the eyes of others. You call them anti-science. You call them bigots. You call them delusional. You mock them and you get leaders to stand down. You wanna know how Nazi Germany became Nazi Germany? Here's how. Elizabeth Noel Newman talked about um, what the Germans used, and they realized that there was this this thing that they could use um, in, in the midst of propaganda that would silence people and silence leaders. And she later, she became a lecturer in the United States, a sociologist, 
Um, and she wrote about what's called the, the uh, what was labeled by her as the spiral of silence, which is this, that the vast majority of people just listen to what a small minority talk about. And uh, they listen, if you will, to the conversations of the elite. And they take, uh, when they first see things happening, well, this doesn't really affect me, I'll let it go. And by the way, what are other people who are standing up against this thing, what's happening to them? And what happens is um, they, they find a few people who are standing up and speaking out against fascism. And they marginalize them, they call them anti-German, or they call them anti-nationalists, or they call them uh, subversives to the, what's good for the state, and they, they do exactly what I just said. They call them names, and they beat them down, and everybody's watching. And when they can silence just a few of the courageous leaders, everybody else quits talking. And then when everybody else quits talking, and it gets crazier and crazier and crazier, all of a sudden, then people go, well, this doesn't look right, but nobody else is speaking up, so I guess it must be right, and I don't want to look like I'm the only one who thinks what everybody's doing is crazy. And next thing you know, you get Nazi Germany. And what it takes is men who know what time it is and who know what truth is and who are willing to stand up and to speak up and to do the right thing. Um, I, I'm... I'm I'm going to get back to Jeroboam in a second. But uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Andrew Walker, who wrote, writes for an, uh, a magazine called First Things, he just said, if I was going to write uh, a strategy for how to change culture, I would do it this way. I would take a topic that I want to, um, that I want to uh, bring to the forefront or an ideology that I want to advance and I would, I would uh, relativize my issue with other issues. You saw this happen most famously with, uh, with the world's view on homosexuality and they identified it with the way we treated people of color. And they said, just like that's a racist idea, this is a homophobic idea, okay? And they equated um, people's sexual preferences that they choose, or maybe they don't even feel like they choose them, but their morality, okay, with their makeup, with their skin color, and with the way God designed them. And the question, the question becomes, is there a God, is he a designer? And we know that God made men every different color from every different nation. The question is, does he make men, some who choose to love men, and men who choose to love women? And if you reject the idea of God and his goodness, uh, then you're going to say, let people choose what they're going to choose. So you relativize the issue with other issues. The next thing you do is you just sit back and you go, so I'm not really sure then what I should do with this issue. And then what happens next is people decide to not speak out publicly on that issue. And what happens, according to Elizabeth Noel Newman, when people stop speaking out publicly, everyone kind of goes, it doesn't look right, but I guess no one else thinks it's wrong. And so they grow indifferent to the issue. And then what happens is they become accepting about the issue. And then it's not enough just to accept it. Now you've got to affirm it and almost become an evangelist for the issue. And then what's the last step? The last step is you require that everybody embrace the ideology. And the only way to stem that flow is that when somebody starts to relativize the issue, leaders go, no, 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 bro, we can't relativize this. This is why. And there was a failure amongst the church. There was an inability um, for 
people to respond to this because they weren't equipped and because certain leaders uh, didn't relativize the issue with other sin, they acted like that was the only sin. And as I've said here a lot, we, we acted like some of the sins that we struggled with weren't sins at all. And they go, you guys don't believe in a God with a moral standard. You believe in, in a God that makes you like what you like and criticize folks who aren't like you. And we needed to repent of that. But it's just exactly how you start. You relativize the issue. You start to be uncertain about the issue. You refuse to speak publicly on the issue. You get indifferent toward the issue. You accept it, you affirm it, and you require it. And the only thing that will turn that is leaders. Uh, Courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, it stiffens the spines of other men. That's what leaders do. And... uh, You know, uh, uh, it doesn't take, Samuel Adams said, the guy who makes your beer. He said, it does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. And what you've got is some people who say, hey, this is the freedom that men want. We need to let people do what they want to do. And it takes a leader to go, that's not going to work out well for you. Here's the deal. The reason Israel really struggled is because they had a leader who spoke up. His name was Jeroboam. Uh, Israel was a monarchy, monarchy under God's design um, because you had leaders that did not lead exceedingly well, right down to Solomon who had all, this is what's so instructive to us, Solomon had all the skill set. He had the book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He just didn't live it. And because he didn't live it, because he couldn't say to his boy, imitate me as I've imitated wisdom. His boy did not walk in the ways of wisdom. And so when he became king, he thought, it's my time to rule. Leadership, guys, is a privilege. It's not as much a position. And he took his position and said, it's time for me to party. And what happened is there was a guy that rose up named Jeroboam who said to people, you don't want to follow that little scoundrel. Follow me. And he said, I'm going to make it easier for you than having to go all the way down there to Jerusalem and worship down there at that temple that his daddy built. Uh, you can just worship right up here. I'll build another altar. I'll make another festival. So you don't have to walk those long 70 miles down north. And he rallied the people around him and uh, he said, follow me. Now that's First Kings, if you want to read it, Chapter 12, verse 25 through 1 Kings 13, 6. That's the story of Jeroboam's rule. That's basically what he did. He made it easier for people. He marginalized them and put them against one another. He created some, if you will, identity politics. And I'll make it easier for you if you just follow me. And then I want to just read you a bunch of verses. Are you ready? Watch this. It talks now about Nadab when he dies. This is 1 Kings 15, 26. It says, Nadab did evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? He walked in the way of his father. And he made his sin, which he made all of Israel's sin. Drop down to verse 30. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and which he made Israel sin, because of the provocation with which he provoked the Lord of Israel to anger, it says there was trouble. Verse 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, 
Basha, the son of Ahijai, became king over all Israel at Terzah and reigned for 24 years. And it says, and he did then evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 34, and walked in the way of Jeroboam. Verse 16, uh, verse 2 of chapter 16. Um, he said, listen, I exalted you from the dust to the next king and made you leader over my people, but you've walked in the way of Jeroboam. This goes on 20 different times through all 19 kings. Five different families ruled in the north. Five different dynasties, but they all followed in the way of Jeroboam. Leadership has tremendous implications, and that is why about 200 years after Jeroboam, God finally said, that's enough. And he brought down Assyria and he wiped out those 10 tribes that had followed the way of the wicked. Leadership matters. And what Jeroboam did is he just looked at the, um, you know, really the will of the people and he just said, I'm going to lead in the way that the people want so they'll make me king. And that's not what leaders do. Leaders lead. No matter how folks respond. And they pour out their life for the sheep. In Isaiah chapter 3, and we'll shut down with this, um, God talks about what judgment on a land really looks like. And I want you to see what it looks like. Isaiah 3, for behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. Okay, if you don't have stuff to, to eat or drink, it's trouble in a land. But watch this. Um, the mighty, this, is, this is what he's going to talk about. This is what really makes a nation crumble. It's not just physical bread and physical water. I mean, obviously we need that. But what you need, that's why Jesus' favorite analogy was, hey, listen, I'm the bread of life. Just like you need something outside of you to come into you to give you fear, uh, physical strength, you need something outside of you to give you spiritual strength. And what's a good leader do? He provides it. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread. Verse two of Isaiah three. I'm gonna remove the mighty man and the warrior. I'm gonna remove the judge, the one who does right, and the prophet, the one who speaks right. I'm gonna remove the diviner, the one who knows things that are ultimately true, and the elder, the wiser, older man, the captain of 50 and all the honorable men, the counselor and the expert artisan and the skillful enchanter, and I will make mere lads their princes and capricious children who want what they want when they want it and nobody's gonna tell them they can't have it will rule over them and the people will be oppressed each one by another, each one by his neighbor. What happens when you get rid of a leader? Well, the flies destroy each other. And when you have a mom and dad that leads a chaotic home, you've got chaos in the lives of the kids, and the youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. Judgment on a nation always looks like leaders who don't know how to lead with honor. You want to know why we've got such chaos in our homes? You ought to start by looking at the man in the mirror who God has sovereignly put over that household. You know what's really interesting about that little video I showed at the very beginning? We saw that shepherd go down in Albania. That was a woman. Makes it harder to watch for some reason. And you see in our country women getting run over. Why? 
because right now it's a big, big news story, is it not? That women have been harassed for a long time. You know why? Because we've had capricious men in positions of power and other men have turned a blind eye and given ourselves permission. Like, well, maybe if they get away with that, I can get away with that. And our country is suffering. Our women are suffering. Our children are suffering because we don't lead. That's why we've been here. That we might become skilled. But let me just remind you, the guy who wrote the book was not a doer of the word, but he was merely a hearer or a writer that deluded himself. And so I promise you, your wives and your kids are thrilled that you're getting up at 5 a.m. to come here. But they're going to be even more thrilled when you live it when you get home. One of the things that leaders should do when they blow it is just ask for forgiveness. Not promise they'll never make a mistake again. They just start to order their lives. And they just start to purpose to, to be a different kind of man. They repent. They seek forgiveness. They do all the amends making they can. And they change. And so, guys, I'm just going to tell you, if all we do is when we walk out of here is go, that was a good eight weeks, and we don't encourage each other day after day, as long as it's called today, if our stewardship doesn't change, if our parenting doesn't change, if our work ethic doesn't change, and I could go right back through all eight weeks, then this has been an exercise in futility. And our country will remain at risk. So leadership is everything. Um, there is a reason when we started to think about how we were going to lead our kids. What I did is I went through Proverbs. And if you want to go up in our children's building on the second floor, you'll see 36 different ways that uh, we are to learn to live that are uh, wisdom living. We're trying to teach our kids how to be skilled livers, how to be skilled leaders. And, uh, and, and what we do is we teach them uh, what the thing is that wisdom would have them do, what the expense is the second week if they don't do it, what happens when folks finally do it, and then the fourth week, and that's why you'll see up there on, on the top of our deal, okay, and, and our children's building, it say, in Christ, all right, uh, are, hidden, uh, are hidden all the attributes of wisdom. In other words, we show them Jesus is the fullest expression of what a wise life looks like. And not only is he an expression of it, he is the provision for the fact that you don't always live according to it, but you learn to love Jesus who gave his life for you and you learn to imitate him. And when you do that, you will have a, a blessed life. And so we're teaching our kids, Christ is their provision and their example. In Christ, are hidden all the treasures. And so we're not just trying to be better men. We are acknowledging our weakness. We're accepting God's provision and we're following our king. And we're to encourage each other day after day about the goodness of his way. And when you do, believe me, the people will rejoice. So way to go, guys, for mowing through this. One of the things you want to do as you walk out of here today is come up with a strategy to encourage each other to execute Leaders aren't just guys that read books. Leaders are men that do. And so here we go. Father, thank you for these men. I pray they'd know what time it is. And uh, we have a watching world who is looking for folks that will stand up and not just do what the polls tell us we should do, but do what a kind king has modeled for us so that we can have a land that is um, filled with blessing. We thank you for your grace that you cover a multitude of sins 
But Lord, we don't want to continue to be fools so that grace might abound. We want to be conformed in your image. We want to be servant leaders. We want to love. Let's start with our own households and may it ripple out into our land. So bless these guys, Lord. I pray that these Proverbs would be their friends the rest of their life and that they would walk in your ways, worthy of the calling with which they've been called. Forgive us where we have been lazy. Forgive us, Lord, as we have not led ourselves. And help us to get it right so we can lead others and people can be blessed, consistent with your will and desire for them. Bless these men, Lord. Use us now in Jesus' name. Amen.